0: Uh, We're continuing a sermon series this morning through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. We've called uh, this sermon series a cross-shaped community because that really is overall uh, from the beginning to end of this letter. It's Paul talking to uh, this young church about what it means for them to be shaped by, to get their vision of what a good and flourishing human life looks like, to get that vision through the cross of Jesus Christ, his way of living his life, his way of laying down his life and sacrificial death. And our prayer has been that that too would come uh, to mark our life together. And so this morning our scripture reading is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, we are uh, right on the beginning of Thanksgiving week. Where will you be on Thursday? Maybe your mind is already anticipating uh, what it will be like, but where will you plan to be on Thursday for uh, the Thanksgiving meal? Will you be uh, surrounded by family uh, in a home of warmth? Will you be surrounded, maybe you're distant from family this year and you plan to celebrate with friends uh, together uh, around a table? Perhaps you're looking forward to it with gladness. Maybe uh, you will be missing your family. Maybe Thanksgiving is a time where you feel especially the weight and the pain of estrangement in your family, of loss in your family. And so the day comes uh, not with eagerness, uh, but with some sense of dread. Maybe your dread is because you will be with family. And uh, the estrangement and distance in your family, you will try to uh, fake your way through for a couple of hours over some turkey. You know, meals together, uh, especially symbolic meals, feast meals like Thanksgiving, have a way of heightening for us either our sense of belonging and inclusion or our sense of estrangement and distance and isolation, right? There's something about being at a meal that makes you either uh, recognize that you are glad that you've been knit into a community and that you have that there together, or to feel especially the sting of your exclusion, your isolation, uh, your loneliness. There was a story that ran in National Geographic a few years ago in 2014 that was about the social role that food plays in human culture uh, and the way that it has served in that way for thousands of years. It focuses on a particular discovery in a cave outside of Tel Aviv in what's now Israel uh, where they found evidence of ancient meals prepared around an oven that was 300,000 years old. They found evidence of bread baked in this oven, the oldest uh, such evidence that they found. And here in this cave, they actually found the remainder of a piece of bread uh, that was baked into a circle with scores around it so that it could be broken and shared. One large loaf of bread that could be broken and shared with uh, whatever early people were living in this cave. The article goes on to say, To break bread together, a phrase as old as the Bible, captures the power of a meal to forge relationships, to bury anger, to provoke laughter. Children make mud pies and have tea parties and trade snacks to make friends and mimic the rituals of adults. They celebrate with sweets from the time of their first birthday. And the association of food with love will continue throughout life and in some belief systems into the afterlife. The association of food with love will continue throughout life and in some religious traditions on into the life to come. Friends, in case you don't recognize it, uh, that belief system they're talking about, that is the Christian belief system. Uh, We have in our faith the connection between food and love and the hope, the belief that eternity will be marked as a feast between God and his people, a celebration of union and communion, of unity, Between the God who made us and his children, his sons and daughters, uh, that eternity uh, will be a feast of inclusion and joy. You know, this is why Jesus' life and ministry was marked in a very interesting way by the meals that he ate. One New Testament commentator says, if you read the Gospels, the impression that you get is that Jesus was always either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal, Uh, He ate so richly and it was such a mark of his life that his critics accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. Uh, They also looked at him with judgment, not just for how he ate, but with whom he ate. That he ate not with the upstanding members of society, he ate not with religious leaders and teachers of his day, but he ate with notorious sinners. He ate with prostitutes, he ate, ate with tax collectors, he ate with the blind and the lame and the deaf. He did this, he gives us actually a key for how we're to understand and interpret these meals that he ate. When he tells us in one famous parable that the kingdom of God is like a great banquet, right? That the kingdom of God, God's eternal feast is like a banquet. And at that banquet, the guest list isn't going to be what you would expect. It's not going to be the morally respectable and the upright, but it's going to be the blind, the lame, and the deaf. And so the meals that he ate were kind of a parable for what he thought, what he believed the kingdom of God was going to be marked by. And of course, he left his church with a meal, a shared practice of coming together around a table as a sign and a seal of our union and our communion with God through Christ and with one another as his family, that the church would be a place where a meal was a symbol of inclusion and joy and embrace instead of one of exclusion and judgment and isolation. And so he leaves us uh, with this meal, this meal that Paul calls here the Lord's Supper, uh, as a key to our life together. It's in this meal that we realize uh, that the rejection of Jesus ends in our acceptance, that the brokenness of his body leads towards our being brought back together in one body, the scattered remnants of the human family. And yet, uh, in Corinth, in the church that Paul is writing to, Paul observes a problem. That this meal that was meant to be a sign and a seal of union and communion, of unity and embrace, had instead become a moment of prejudice against one another, of sorting one another uh, by social class and income level. That what was meant to be a table of inclusion had instead become a table of exclusion, Here's what was happening in Corinth, a few things that we need to note about what's going on here. The first is that when the early church in these first centuries, really the first decades of the Christian church, got together to share in the Lord's Supper, it was not in the context that we do it. It wasn't in a church building like this one. It wasn't as one part, it seems, of a larger worship service, but that the context here for this meal is in a home. Uh, It's clear that it's a a sacramental meal, that there's a liturgy and a ritual around it, right? Paul invokes some of that here. Words that we still share uh, when we come to the table about what Christ handed on to us. It's clearly a covenant meal. It's clearly them uh, extending in a way what they celebrated uh, as the Passover meal in Israel, the mark of God's covenant with his people. But it would have been celebrated in the home of one of the members of the church, Likely, this would have taken a large home, a villa in the Roman world. And so, therefore, it would have been in one of the homes of one of the wealthier members of the congregation, someone who had a home large enough to host everyone. And what we know about architecture of the time is that a traditional Roman villa, like the ones that would have been in Corinth, would have had a dining room uh, that was equipped to serve about eight to ten people. Uh, This is a fairly common feature in Roman households called the the triclinium. So you have this dining room of about eight to ten people, and then outside of that there would have been an atrium, which could have accommodated a much larger group. And so it wasn't uncommon uh, when a party was thrown or a meal was thrown in one of these Roman villas, for there essentially to be two parties going on, that there was an inner ring and an outer ring. There was an inner circle in which the villa owner would invite his guests, Uh, would invite the wealthy patrons who came to eat and to drink with him. They would eat there in, uh, in the triclinium, in the dining room. In that room, they would have the best food. There was no obligation. The host was obligated to feed everyone he invited, but he wasn't obligated to feed everyone the same meal. And so what would have gone on in the dining room would have been the best of the food, the best of the wine, the best stuff, would have been offered to these most distinguished guests, right? And, you know... Human beings aren't that different then and now. We can understand why that might be, right? These are the people who might be able to help this man or woman get ahead in the business world. You know, they were entertaining people who might be able to help them. They were entertaining people who might be able to return the favor and invite them to more dinner parties and nice villas. And then on the outside in the atrium, they would feed the others, the servants, the slaves, the freedmen, the merchants, the people who were invited to to be a part of the party but not invited to be a part of the inner ring. These people would often eat after, you know, after they made sure that the the privileged guests had had enough. These others would be served. They would often be served uh, less than food. If the the folks on the inside uh, of the dining hall were eating steak, the folks on the outside were maybe getting chicken, right? If the people on the inside were drinking the, the good wine, the people on the outside were getting the boxed wine. Right? And so they were, they were they, this was an outer ring in these parties. And what we see happening in Corinth is that the people had taken the way of relating socially that they had learned in their culture, that they had learned in their world, and they had applied that to the Lord's table. Right? We see Paul's revulsion at this when he says, some of you are even getting drunk in the midst of this. And he, the, you know, your translation just says, what? What are you doing? You see, here, as in other areas of Corinth, the problem was that they they were being marked more by the culture around them. They had more of Corinth in them than they did of Christ. They had been shaped by the tables of this world in such a way that it had come to shape the way that they practiced the table of the Lord. And Paul's argument is that it should actually work the exact opposite direction. That Christians should learn around this table How to genuinely relate, how to connect, how to feed, how to share life together in such a way that it affects the way that we eat the rest of our meals, the way that we treat our life with God and with our neighbors, the way that we handle the rest of our social relationships are to be learned here around this table. It's like what we hope, uh, it's like what I hope for my children, right? You hope that their shared experience of family meals around our table. Starts to affect the way that they treat others around the other tables that they will find themselves at in life. Right? This is every parent's hope. It's why you don't let your children burp at the table too loudly. Uh, It's the reason that um, you you insist that they learn to eat like human beings and not like farm animals uh, around the table, that they learn to say please and thank you, that they learn to be curious and ask questions and laugh and welcome. Right? That they'll be shaped by that table in such a way that they then take that practice and it joins them when they're on their first date, when they're at a business lunch, when they're at their school lunchroom and having to decide who do they include, who do they exclude, that they will have been shaped by a particular table. And so Paul uh, points us here to how the Christian table, the Lord's Supper, is meant to shape us. He shows us how the Christian uh, celebration of the Lord's table uh, is meant to really be the Christian faith in miniature that we learn how to be Christians around uh, the table of Jesus. And so, first, he shows us that at the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ by faith. Look at what he says uh, here in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And he goes on to describe it. You know, the language here, Paul is clearly talking about what was already a tradition, right? He's saying what I'm giving to you is what I received from Jesus. So it's an apostolic practice going back to Paul and the apostles from what they received from Jesus himself. And now he's passing it on to this early church that would then be passed on generation to generation to generation of Christians until we get uh, even to us in the contemporary day. But Paul's language here is very interesting, and we miss something of it in the English. He repeats three times a particular phrase that means to be handed over, right? He's receiving what was handed over to him, that Jesus on the night that he was handed over. Our translation puts it as betrayed, but that's really, that's an interpretation of the text, right? He's saying that, that Jesus was handed over. And we know that in a sense, Jesus was handed over by Judas, right? That he was betrayed by Judas to the authorities. But I think what Paul is getting at here uh, is the language of Isaiah that tells us that Jesus was handed over, and his handing over wasn't ultimately by Judas, but by God the Father. That God handed over his son to be the death for sinners so that we could have grace. That the Father handed over the Son, right, in that moment of Jesus' betrayal, it wasn't ultimately, uh, his fate wasn't ultimately in the hands of sinful men. It wasn't in Judas or in the religious leaders of Israel or in the Roman guards. That his hands, his life was in the hands of the Father who gave the Son to us so that he might become for us life and forgiveness and salvation. What Paul is getting at in this language is that in the meal, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is handed over to us. Jesus is offered to us by the Father, just as he was on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed, so that he could become life and peace for us. This is why we believe that Jesus is present to us in this table. That just as we receive him by faith, when we acknowledge our sin and trust in him for salvation, that that is what's dramatized here around this table, that Jesus really and truly is present to us and given to us. Now, Christians throughout the centuries, uh, sadly, have often disagreed and divided over the question of how exactly is Jesus present in the Lord's table. Right, it's sad, isn't it, to think, uh, that this table that's meant to be an occasion for communion and unity has often been an occasion for division, uh, even in the church. Right around the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, there was a clear consensus among the Reformers that the Roman Catholic view of how Christ was present in the table uh, was a wrong one. Right? The medieval practice uh, in the Roman church around this was to believe that the body and blood Uh, that the bread and the wine literally became the body and blood of Christ. That somehow uh, the bread became no longer bread, but the physical body of Jesus. And And the wine became no longer wine, but actually the physical blood of Christ. And the reformers were agreed on two things. One, Christ is really present. And two, it's not a physical presence in the body and blood right, that Calvin uh, believed and, and pointed out that biblically, right, the last we see of the physical Jesus is at his ascension when he goes to be at the right hand of God. That Jesus still is in a physical body at the right hand of God the Father. And so physically, that's where he is. But spiritually, he's present to his people. And so they, they tried a few times to resolve these differences, uh, Lutherans believed in a view that said that the presence of Christ wasn't in the bread and wine, but as they said, it was in over and under the bread and wine. Others, the Zwinglians, who became the, the Anabaptists, believed that Christ was present to us not in a physical way, not in a real way, but in our memory. that when Christ says, "Do this in remembrance of me," that he was present to them in their memory. but Calvin. Uh, from whom our branch of the Christian family tree grows, said, no, no, Christ is really spiritually present in the Lord's table, right? His presence with us isn't physical. He doesn't become the bread and wine. But by his Holy Spirit, it is a real presence. In one moving passage of his Institutes, Calvin says, it's not that Christ physically comes down from heaven to earth to be present with us, but by his Spirit, he lifts us to heaven to commune with God the Father. Amen. But we believe that Christ really and truly is spiritually present with us when we come. This is why Paul earlier, uh, just a chapter before in 1 Corinthians, says that we participate in the body and blood of Christ. Right? We don't merely remember. We don't merely memorialize. But we actually participate in Christ at his table. We taste a real, though spiritual, Union with Jesus. And here it reminds us of who we are. That fundamentally we are sinners, that we are needy people in need again of receiving Jesus, the real Jesus, by faith. And so we rehearse again every time that we come to this table, every week, our inclusion in Christ and his very presence by faith. Secondly, Paul reminds us uh, that we're to celebrate with gratitude. When we come to the Lord's table. He tells us that Jesus, after uh, giving thanks, broke his, uh, the bread in verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it. The word here for given thanks is Eucharisto. It's where we get the term, if you've heard this table, referred to as the Eucharist. That's where this word comes from. The New Testament will use different words to describe this meal. Sometimes the Lord's Supper, as Paul does here. Sometimes Communion. And sometimes Eucharist, which simply means giving thanks. It's to come before God with gratitude for the gifts that He's given us, supremely the gift that He gives us uh, in Jesus. You know, I think this is an important uh, aspect of the Lord's Supper for us to remember. It's that when we come together around this table, it is a celebration, it is a thanksgiving feast. Right There is an appropriate level of sobriety that goes with it. There's an appropriate level of seriousness because we believe God is present and we're eating with him, but it is not a funeral service. Right? We don't simply come together to remember that time that something sad happened to Jesus right? because it's not only a participation in the death of Christ and his broken body and his shed blood, but it's a participation in the resurrection of Jesus That Jesus for us doesn't remain dead and betrayed, but that he comes to new life so that we can have a real and living faith and fellowship with him. So when we come to this table, it's appropriate to come with a certain level of joy. I love seeing our children come to this table to admit a simple childlike faith that I'm a sinner in need of a rescuer. And I receive that with gladness. It's a joy even if sometimes they or their parents Burst out in laughter along the way. It's a, it's, it's a joy uh, that should mark our coming together here at this table. It is a real and living celebration of Jesus. That's why, by the way, that we do it weekly uh, here in this church. Right? There's different practices. Just as Christians have divided over uh, how and, and how Jesus is present, some churches divide over how often you ought to take the Lord's Supper. Some do it weekly. Some do it monthly, some do it quarterly, Um, but it's our view that if something is a celebration of the gospel, if something is a celebration of our union and communion with Christ, that we ought to celebrate that union as often as is feasible and possible. We believe, you know, how, how often is too often to give thanks and to express gratitude to God? How often is too often to come before God and admit that you're a sinner and to receive Christ? By faith, how often is too often to celebrate with your brothers and your sisters around the family meal, around the family table? You know, interestingly, we've we've this, I'm exhausting. I think my uh, my annual mentions of John Calvin. We try not to uh, to live in the past too much. But Calvin's view uh, was that the communion should be celebrated weekly; uh, that it should be celebrated every time God's people got together to worship. Uh, that just as much as you wouldn't gather to worship without praying or preaching and celebrating the word, you shouldn't gather without celebrating the table. Calvin, interestingly, as uh, all pastors have learned, doesn't, didn't always get his way. Uh, his elders at the church in Geneva uh, did not agree with him, right? It takes some, takes some guts to disagree with, with John Calvin. But they said, no, our practice here is to do it monthly, so we're going to do it monthly. And so Calvin, showing a level of humility and submission to his brothers in Christ, uh, said, Okay, well, we'll do it. I want to do it as often as I can, and I guess as often as I can is monthly here. So we'll do it monthly. But when we started from scratch and planted a church, uh, we decided, Well, we're going to do it weekly. We're going to celebrate weekly uh, this tangible reminder, this sign and seal of God's love and his grace and his mercy to us because we need it. Uh, We forget it regularly and need to be reminded. And then finally, Paul points us uh, to the fact that in communion, in the Lord's table, we are joined to one another in communion. You know, it's often when we come to communion, we come to the Lord's table to to think primarily about God's grace to us in Christ, about Christ's death and resurrection, and the communion that we have in God through the cross and with God. But Paul reminds us here that the communion we celebrate isn't simply a restored relationship with God but also a restored relationship to our brothers and sisters, that we do it as a family meal. In fact, that's Paul's particular focus here in this passage. Right? His particular focus is not in, uh, necessarily that they were viewing their relationship with God through the wrong lens as they came to the table, but they were violating their communion with one another. They were violating the unity that was supposed to be there with one another because they had divided between rich and poor inside and outside. And so Paul says uh, in some fairly sobering words and some actually fairly often uh, misunderstood words. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. These may be, although it's a a tight competition, these may be some of the more misapplied and misunderstood words in the Bible. Um, Very often, these words have been taken to mean uh, to lead people to a sense of intense moral self-examination such that if you are aware of any sin in your life, you shouldn't come uh, to the communion table. I've known people, I've known uh, men and women in Christ who for decades, because of guilt and shame, refuse to take communion. These words, when put in that way, when it says examine yourself, can lead for some of us, that just adds a certain fuel to the already raging fire of internal judgment and self-criticism that we live our lives with. Right? That we examine ourselves, and if we don't measure up this week, if we didn't pray enough, if we didn't do enough good things, if we didn't attend church enough, that we've examined ourselves and we find ourselves wanting. But that is not what Paul is after here. Paul reminds us over and over again that this is a meal for sinners, right? This is a meal for the guilty, for the ashamed, for those who who wonder if they belong. This is a meal of grace and inclusion and mercy, right? Others have taken it. So some have said it's it's about uh, internal self-examination. Others have said that it, it requires this level of sacramental theology and understanding in order to come to the table. Right, That if you're not able to discern the body, if you don't have a, a right and reformed and correct understanding of exactly what's happening here in the mystery of Christ's presence, that you shouldn't come. But that's not what Paul's talking about here either. The examination and the discernment that Paul's after when read in context is to say, if you are one of the Christians that's gathering together and over and over again, you are perverting the meal of communion to be a a moment of exclusion and division in the church, then you are eating and drinking, not blessing, but judgment on yourself. And so you ought to stop. Because throughout the pages of the Bible, if there's one thing that's true, it's when God's presence is somewhere. When God is present, that it's an occasion for either blessing or judgment. Right? It's not to be trifled with or or, or treated lightly. That if we believe God's presence is really here, then to mistreat it is a big deal. To use the presence of God himself, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, is an occasion for division and judgment and prejudice. Paul says, you ought to be really careful before you come to this meal again, if that's how you're doing it. So it's a warning for those who are unable to discern the body, uh, metaphorically as as Paul uses it, to mean his body, the body of Christ, the church. Unable to discern that and using it divisively. If that's you, you should not come to mime, uh, to go through a a charade of unity when you're really after division. So it's not uh, to keep guilty sinners away, but to welcome us and to take people who use their sin as a weapon against others as a warning. And Paul includes something. That few of us understand, Uh, many of us assume he must not mean what he says. In verse 30, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is one of those passages that modern readers come to, and we love to ask, well, what did Paul really mean? Right? We know that he didn't really mean uh, that because of this perverted practice of the Lord's Supper, some were sick and dying. We know that's not how medicine and health works. So what did Paul really mean? when he said that some had gotten sick and died because of their mistreatment of communion. Well, I'm going to suggest that what Paul really meant was that some had gotten sick and died (laughs) (laughs) because they had mistreated communion. Um, What Paul is getting at here is something that is very strange for modern readers. Modern people, one one of the chief beliefs of the modern world, is that the line between spirituality and physicality is a hard line that can't be crossed, right? There's there's the world of the physical, the things that we can see, touch, taste, examine, the things that are the the realm of research and science, and those things belong over here. And then there's the world of spirituality, uh, the world of things like beliefs and gods and prayer and things like that. And that is a hard and fast line that never gets crossed over. The biblical worldview is one that the line between the physical world and the spiritual world is a dotted line. Uh, It's a permeable line. And interestingly, uh, modern and contemporary science is coming to realize increasingly that that's the case, right? That prayer really does have the power uh, to change the way that your brain operates, brain chemistry and mental health. Uh, That emotional and spiritual health uh, can and will work itself out in your physical body. Right, That if you live in shame, uh, there's been fascinating research over the corrosive power of shame in your health. Right, That if you live with shame, that it starts to affect the way that your body functions in your daily life. And so we don't want to, obviously, this is not an argument that we throw out contemporary medical science. But it is an argument that we believe the Bible. That spiritual health is connected to physical health. And that physical health is connected to spiritual health. That to be a healthy person requires uh, the acknowledgement that you aren't just a physical being. That you are body, soul, mind, spirit. That God made you an integrated person. You know, quite frankly, I think the reason that we don't believe what Paul says about some getting sick and dying here uh, shows us why we struggle with sacraments in general. The belief that the spiritual and the physical can find a union in bread and wine. The belief that Jesus really can use stuff, things like water, to include people into his covenant family. That he can use things like bread and like wine to offer himself really and truly for the life of the world and to his people. The scriptures tell us that God, this world is charged with God's glory. That his presence is behind every bit of it that his glory is there uh, behind everything, that if we have the eyes to see and to look, the entire world, in a sense, is sacramental, a window to show us who God is and what he's like. And here, around the baptismal font and around this table, that curtain is pulled forth a little bit more, and that he communes with his people by grace, through faith, with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Help us, help us, Lord, to see you, to view our lives as not cut off and isolated from the spiritual world, but, Lord, to see you really and truly present to us, present to us by your spirit in this meal, present to us always, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and by your grace. Lord, as we prepare in just a few minutes uh, to come to your table. Lord, we pray uh, that you would pull back the curtain a bit for us. Strengthen our faith to see this meal for what it is. A real and living communion. A celebration of that vital union that you won for us on the cross. Where the curtain between heaven and earth forever was torn apart. So that we could dwell with God really and truly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.